same old trouble villains always knocking at the door pretty pictures on the page but nothing ever stays the same thank you vandello and welcome once again to graphically novel my name is josh wasta aka fallout fieri and with me as always is the white canary to my black canary the joker to my harley quinn the good taste to my joker and harley relationship <laughs> the, wheel- the wheelchair to your barbara gordon <laughs> and with us, as usual, is the lovely and talented Baronessa, Miss Jennifer Holland. Hello, thank you. And since I have the pleasure of introducing our guest this season, I'd like to also welcome Kat Esman. Thank you for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Our local DC expert. That's a lot. I don't know if I can live up to that. I like you. <laughs> Oh, no. Okay. Through your corners. Kat, you are coming to us here in Cedar Rapids, and we recently, on the episode on The Boys, had your husband, Troy, on, and we talked a little bit about your relationship. But let's start with your history with comics. How did you get into them? How did they affect your life now? I mean, it's your fault. (laughs) I'll take it. Josh was living with my brother and my sister above a comic shop when I first started kind of venturing to this side of the state. And since they were above the comic shop, of course, you have to visit the comic shop. And I personally had always kind of liked Batgirl and Superman and DC stuff. So Robert Limited Edition hooked me up and was like, well, this is Identity Crisis and this is Infinite Crisis and go. Ah, yes. We have discussed Rob on this show a few times this season. The Sedite, the pusher of comics, the... (laughs) Basically, if he could hang out outside of elementary schools with free comic book day comics, you know, like the rumors that drug dealers were giving away free drugs back in the 80s, it's kind of like that. On that subject, that's one of those things that I was really kind of disappointed that now that I'm in my 40s, where are all these people with the free drugs that my teachers and my parents told me about? Or why isn't quicksand as big of a deal as I thought it was going to be? Well, it is for our tax. (laughs) Today we will be working or doing Birds of Prey. Now, you may have seen the movie, which has Birds of Prey and the fantabulous something-something of Harley Quinn. The uh, fantabulous emancipation. There you go. That second part was tacked on when they started announcing that there's going to be a Birds of Prey movie. And people were like, what, who? We're going to break it down a little bit. We're going to introduce you to Birds of Prey by Gail Simone. The run is called End Run. Issues one through six of a reboot that was done during the Brightest Day series of DC. But when asking, because obviously none of the three of us are DC, so we had to have our, our DC expert on. And when I said, hey, Kat, what should we read for this? What would you recommend? She just gave me a name, and that name was Gail Simone. Kat, can you break down exactly why Gail Simone was your go-to? She's my favorite comic writer, to be fair. So it, it's kind of an easy line for me. Anytime it's a Gail Simone comic, I'm probably going to buy it. I really love her writing style. She's very dynamic. She's very funny. She writes action in a way that you can kind of see it like it's a movie. I could see how this fight scene would go in the film version of this comic. And so I've always really liked her fight scenes, which is big in, in superhero comics. But I've also just always loved her take on characters. She brings a lot of depth to them. 
she's worked with a lot of different comics. She wrote Deadpool for a very long time. She did Tomb Raider and Red Sonia. She's been all over the industry on various companies, payrolls, but I've always been the biggest fan of her DC stuff, particularly her Barbara Gordon run in the New 52 era was some of my favorite comics ever written. She is known for, in 1999, she wrote a article called Women in Refrigerators that then turned into an entire website called Women in Refrigerators. You would be better to give me the history of that trope and how she coined it. Thought about reading it, but I didn't want to be the dude talking over you, so. The woman in the refrigerator, sometimes referred to as girlfriend in the refrigerator, is that wonderful tendency of not just comics, but they are a really common perpetrator of this, to make a female character only there to die to motivate the main male character. So it's all ripping on a DC comic for Green Lantern. It was Kyle Rayner who is a Green Lantern. I mean, he's not Guy Gardner, I guess. Not even John Stewart. John Stewart's great. How dare you? I said he's not even. I know. No, it's literally like Guy Gardner is the bottom of the lines for Green Lanterns, and then Kyle Rayner, and then everybody else, like a mile up above them. He had a girlfriend. She wasn't super in the comic. He comes home one day, opens the refrigerator. They don't really show it, but you get the impression that she was killed, cut up, and shoved into the fridge to try and make Kyle Rayner man up and be a better hero, essentially, is what the end of the comic's story arc is. And then you never hear about that lady again. They've done it a lot, and they've done it since 1999. Gail Simone wasn't a comic writer when she wrote Women in the Refrigerator. It's what got her noticed by the industry, and then they started giving her comics to write. She was a hairdresser before that. It happens in all kinds of media, and it's bad. Like, I'll get to the point where there's some movies I can't watch, because I'm like, they're just fridging this person. I'm not watching them fridging this person. We actually have discussed it on the show when we talked about Deadpool 2 a little bit. Just the very beginning of Deadpool 2. Did not enjoy Deadpool 2. As a film. (laughs) There were definitely parts that should have been funny, but I was too busy being really mad at the movie to enjoy the movie. Yeah, and it's almost set up to self-call itself of, did we really fridge her, and then fix it throughout the course of the movie. Yeah, and to me that one was really bad because, like I said, Gail Simone wrote Deadpool, like some definitive classic Deadpool stuff. When he's zipping around on that red scooter, that is straight up, she made the Deadpool scooter. It was part of her run. It was, like, painted like his costume, and he zipped around, like, on a little, like, Deadpool Vespa. It was hysterical. They aped her stuff. She even did a Domino run, and they put Domino in the movie. So, like, they were clearly referencing Gail Simone stuff, and then committed her, like, number one sin. I was just so mad. I was so mad. Moving on, then, to the Birds of Prey comic. Obviously, Kat, you've read it, so we'll go on to... Bear, what did you think of this one through six issue run? I actually really enjoyed it. I thought it had a pretty good plot line. I don't know how I felt about the amount of hugging that happened. There was a lot of hugging in in the run. Not that I'm really attributing that to the fact that it's all females, but like I just kind of looked at it as like it's a bunch of superheroes in general, and there's a lot of hugging, which I didn't really expect. It's a thing. I don't know where to put that on the spectrum. Like, as far as comic book runs go, this is probably one of the better ones I think that I've actually read. Jen? It was well written. Speaking to the whole hugging thing that Bear just brought up, I think that it really was an attempt to say, yeah, these people, some of them are powered, some of them are just highly skilled. They fight all the time, but they are still humans. They still care. And I think that that juxtaposed with Hawk and just his complete out-of-his-mind behavior brought that more to the fore. 
that said, I really felt it was very melodramatic. I mean, there was a point where I looked at Josh and said, I just heard you're watching the CW in my head. Um, (laughs) (laughs) All of the heroes were well-written and they had depth and they showed vulnerability and that I totally dug. I was totally into that. So I'm halfway between all of you. I I started thinking about what we've done on this show, starting all the way back with the ultimates on our number one show and kind of moving through And we, set for maybe two or three, have not done what I would describe as comic booky comic books. We haven't done a lot of your typical superhero, what you think of when you think of a superhero comic. I think, like, Into the Spider-Verse is one. Ultimates, obviously, is another one. But a lot of what we focus on in this show has been, for better or for worse, what's been popular You know, in media, yeah. Preacher, Constantine comes to mind. Happy comes to mind. Umbrella Academy comes to mind. Like, we do a lot more indie comics or not the main two Marvel and DC. And of that, (laughs) we do a lot more Marvel than DC. This season, we took a concerted effort. And then for season three, we took more of a concerted effort even more. I think most of what we do when it comes to DC is Vertigo, which we've said before, which is very specifically filtered in the DC line. Well, it was up until recently where everything's kind of moved to the main DC line. The hugging thing kind of went with what I was thinking and why I looked up Ed Bennis, the artist, a Brazilian artist, which (laughs) when I then went into the subcategory of Brazilian artists, because I only knew a couple of others, and they did a lot more erotic artwork. That kind of clicked for me. This guy's done stuff for a lot of different runs, but I did find for an all-female group, and written by a female author, man, there were some highly sexualized moments that just came out of nowhere. So what do you guys think about that? I have one quick thing to say. Manicure fetish. I don't know if anyone else noticed in that run of six comics, there were at least five close-up shots of hands of the heroes, and they had different types of manicures. These women fight with their hands. Why would they have manicured nails? Why? <laughs> Bear. <laughs> I, I, I don't have any response. I was actually just going to join in and agree because I also thought that the artwork for a lot of the costuming was highly sexualized, uh, which kind of surprised me. Most of them on top of that, except for who was it, Huntress? I think everybody else was fighting in heels. Well, not Oracle. Well, no, she's fighting. <laughs> she did reference that, though. She did. That's true. She did. She did. It was something that struck me, especially there's, obviously we try not to spoil the comic as much as we are going to talk fully about the movie. There is a specific scene where Penguin has a blood loss Wet dream is the best way I could describe it. That part didn't bother us because it was Penguin's head, right? Right. Like, of course right. his brain would think that way. That, yeah. that just jives. He's this creepy, sick old man. I guess I'm kind of immune to it because the comics I read are DC, Marvel, female superhero comics. They all wear heels. They're all sexualized. This is just life. They're not only in a G-string like Starfire. Then it's a good comic for me, I guess. My bar is real low. Yeah, right. Huntress's yeah. costume, though, is 
holy huh. crap. Like when she's like, let me put on my work clothes. I'm like, are you a stripper? I mean, come on. <laughs> Helena Bertinelli's always kind of done that, though. Helena Wayne's Huntress costume is a lot more like armored and logical. And I think that part of that's because of who her dad is. I have a breakdown of each of the characters that we're going to get into. And I could call power not... on the breakdown of those characters. Yeah. yeah. Well, just that particular one where she's like, let me change into my work clothes. She's wearing, let me just call it out, a t-shirt, a leather jacket, jeans, and Converse. And she changes into a bikini and high heel boots. Well, the bikini part and I noticed this, and I don't notice these things normally. The bikini part is like the string bikini kind of thing where it just barely covers your nipples as it goes down. But then she puts like a full something over that. So like it's a little covering. jacket. Yeah, like a little well, jacket. Well, that fastens in the middle because it covers right. everything, the, oh, the has, main parts. <laughs> it has a white cross to bring attention to the middle, you know. Exactly. That's what Hunter's <laughs> wears. Again, low bar here, guys. Yeah. <laughs> like, I yeah. don't even notice it. Yeah. Um, no. My favorite and, and, comic book character is still Power Girl. And there's there's a lot of jokes to be made there that are made in her comics themselves. I actually yeah. just recently watched to prepare for DC, the biggest questions for DC, and one of them is the multiple retcons of Power Girl's background. Oh, gosh. No, it, oh, it hurts every time. She was like part of the Shazam family, and then she was an Atlantean, and it's a lot. It's a lot. Before we get into breaking down characters, I'd kind of like to cover just the overall plot, if I may. Sure. Um, Just being tangentially familiar with the stories that are referred to, especially Green Arrow, I feel like a lot of the plots that are going on in this six-issue run are recycled. I've seen them before in other DC comic runs. The Achilles heel trope, the innocent in danger, and then it's about honor. And But is it really about honor? Who cares about this stuff? This is the same thing I read just with different characters in different places. And maybe the dangling innocent is a different person, but it just seems like it's the same. It's just recycled. I think some of those tropes yes exist but on the other side i think after this run was done is when i noticed a lot of this showed up on the five seasons that we watched of arrow in different ways but a lot of this stuff happened on the cw yeah well and that's fair because i am definitely the farthest thing from an expert on dc comics and my timeline of what i know about is not <laughs> any anywhere realistic to the timeline of the th- of things happening in the comics in the DC universe. So, I mean, the DC comic universe changes its continuity so often that <laughs> that doesn't really. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is two continuities old from Brightest Day, which happened after Bright Darkest Night, which got all erased during New Fifty Two, which all just got erased again. Oh, I didn't know there was a new erase. Yeah, they re-erased New Fifty Two. I'm still getting used to Secret War being a thing that erased a bunch of stuff again in Marvel, so... See? I feel you there. Everything was Dr. Manhattan's fault, apparently. I don't um. (laughs) (laughs) know. Like, they brought Watchmen in to rewrite the DC Universe again. So this is all old. Helena Bertinelli's not Huntress. In New 52, Helena Bertinelli wasn't Huntress anymore. Barbara Gordon wasn't Oracle anymore because she was Batgirl. Like, this is already super old continuity. 
So trying to fit it into the universe doesn't really matter. <laughs> okay, fair. Well, that's the only reason Hawk and Dove are there, is because they had to tie in to Brightest Day, and none of the Birds of Prey have died. And the whole point of Brightest Day was that all these heroes who died got brought back from the dead and were given white rings. And so Hawk and Dove are literally there because she had to put them in for a tie-in. Oh, I see. We'll talk about later, because I want to get through the characters that were in the movie to link them to the comic, and then talk about the people that were in the comic that weren't in the movie, and then we'll talk about the person that was in the movie that wasn't in the comic. But Hawk and Dove, to give a little spoiler, are in Titans, which will be upcoming. It will not be season three. I'm going to guess it's going to be when all of my co-hosts leave me, and it's just me in my basement recording. And you will never go in the basement, so you're lying already. (laughs) That's true. There are spiders down there. There are spiders up here. (laughs) Stop it! I didn't have anything, no, other than to say that, yes, you will definitely be recording alone when it comes around to Titans. It's like, uh, (laughs) that's that's all you, buddy. Have fun. Yeah. Second season was good. Uh, I will die on that hill. Second season was good. Just to kind of tie all that together, Dove and Hawk being in this run of six comics felt like it wasn't like it was like oh yeah we got to put these people in so to your point cat i can totally see they didn't feel like they were organically part of that story yeah and gail simone talks a lot all the time about how how often the editors have to kind of come in and tweak her scripts and that's ignoring how often they have to parse down her scripts for content particularly she did a run on plastic man and that got red penned a lot because she she likes to press those bounds i think that's why she does so many indie comics <laughs> hmm also, um, if you do not follow Gail Simone's Twitter, oh. it is, I put it up there with Chrissy Teigen and Warren, some Ellis. Other, Warren Ellis, some of the other people that are just at the pinnacle of Twitter. Gail Simone will randomly troll bait and act like she's a stupid woman that doesn't understand comics. And there's half of the people are trying to mansplain to her and half the people are like, do you not know who this is? Someone literally tried to mansplain woman in the refrigerator to her last week. I saw that. The respect that I gave is that his response when somebody pointed out, hey, read this article and look who wrote it, was, I'm an idiot. I'm so sorry. Yes, that guy was pretty good. Most of them, they don't realize it or back it off at all. That one was that one was pretty good. But still, I read that. I'm like, uh. My favorite, if you can find it, is the one where this guy who is obviously the dude you knew in high school that has the Punisher logo as his Facebook icon, goes rounds about how she's wrong about the Punisher, and she ends it with, out of the two of us, which one do you think has written the Punisher? Yeah, that one's good. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, no, she doesn't pull any punches. She's a lot of fun. Starting on the characters that appear in the Birds of Prey movie, we're going to skip over the headliner and go to Huntress. I am more familiar with Helena Wayne, who in Earth... Is it Earth 2? Yep, good job. Okay, woohoo! In Earth 2 is Selena Kyle and Bruce Wayne's daughter, Catwoman and Batman's daughter. I really enjoy that character. I think she's a lot of fun. But I also like characters like that. Like, there's one in the Exiles in Marvel that is Gambit and Rogue's daughter. Lots of fun. Again, I like that combination and playing with how are you raised and there's another one that's talia al ghul and bruce wayne's son that's damien right yep yeah see batting a thousand 
But anyway, that is the Huntress that I'm more familiar with. This Huntress, and the one that was used in the movie, is the mobster... I think she was also this Huntress in Arrow. This is the the most common Huntress. Basically, after Crisis on Infinite Earths, Helena Wayne Huntress has only really shown up like once or twice. In continuity, again, like in New 52, she and Power Girl were basically trying to find their Earth 2 again because they got jettisoned into Earth 1 and nothing was right. Power Girl and Huntress trying to get back to the right dimension. All right. Like a quantum leap. Kind of. I mean, they stuck in Earth 1 the whole time. They were basically trying to figure out how to create a thing to get them off of this world and into their correct one. It was actually a really good comic that I think got canceled because DC hates me. Oh, okay. Well, I know that feeling. So thoughts on Huntress. I kind of laid mine out, and Kat obviously is more familiar with the character, but when it comes to the different characters in this movie, did you feel a connection with this character at all? I love Huntress in the movie because her story is her family was killed around her. As a child, she was whisked away to Sicily and then was raised to be an assassin. So she lacks any pop culture references. She doesn't know anything that anyone is talking about. All she knows is how to be a stone cold killer. That's it. The movie is totally a comedy. And the Huntress character in the movie is perfect because she doesn't get what people are saying and she's trying to be one of the cool kids and play along. And I love that. I love that character. Absolutely. Yeah, she's really different than than comic uh, Helena Bertinelli and mm-hmm. it, in ways that I like because like I've never been a big Helena Bertinelli fan I always have preferred Helena Wayne if I can get my huntress that's the huntress that I want the same origin story her family was killed she got whisked off by assassins raised to be a badass but this one feels more real in that I in exactly what you said that she doesn't have any of those social skills and she's super awkward because all she really knows is how to kick the crap out of people and murder people. But I can see where she could go. Like, if this was just the first movie, like, this is the origin story for a lot of these characters. Mm-hmm. The one thing I really like about this movie and the way they handle almost all the characters in Birds of Prey is that it feels like a really good origin story for where they eventually go in the comics. And I can see, because she, she does drop some one-liners every once in a while, where I can go, I can see where you're going to be the Helena Bertinelli I'm used to who's cracking wise. Right. Yeah. Is like, yeah. Is that nugget there. There is no way that I'm going to purchase or watch Suicide Squad again. I will oh, buy no. this movie. I enjoyed this movie. This would be a fun thing to just turn on in the background. Thank you, Margot Robbie. Yeah. Thank you very much for seeing what you could do with these characters and doing something that is so much more enjoyable and doesn't make me want to cry. <laughs> Well, she famously fought the daddy's little monster thing on the first movie, like a bunch. And then that's why she's a producer on this one. I mean, this whole thing is her baby. Almost all the main decisions that were made and the character driving things that were decided on, she decided. And you can tell. Absolutely. Bear thoughts? Well, I was just going to kind of let the girls discuss the movie that was about girls. I personally, as far as Huntress goes, I'm a fan of Mary Elizabeth Winstead. She, if in case anybody missed it, was the actress that played Ramona Flowers in Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Yes, yeah. she was. I did. I, and we just watched Scott Pilgrim, like the cinema sins on that the other day, and I was like, wait a minute, I've seen that actress very recently. <laughs> yeah, I was actually over at Cats watching the movie for the first time, and as soon as she popped up on screen, I was like, where do I know her from? 
And Kat is instantly into IMDb going, oh, that's Ramona Flowers. I was like, oh, yeah. And she was Fair. also... Copyright copyright Jason Taylor. We refer to it as the D. The D. Oh, I apologize. The D, which I don't know if I feel comfortable calling that in the middle of a very female-oriented episode. It's just like, yeah, so we were looking at the D. Okay, um, Bear. Cut it out. <laughs> The people uh, listening might not know you, but I know you. <laughs> <laughs> she was also the girl that was kidnapped in 10 Cloverfield Lane, which was an amazing movie with John Goodman in it, which even though the Cloverfield series might not be all that great, that movie was spectacular. I still haven't seen it because I wanted to watch the first Cloverfield and I, I got as far as TJ Miller being in that movie and I tried and I just couldn't. So maybe I just need to skip to Ted Cloverfield Lane. If I remember correctly, he's not in it very long. Doesn't he get eaten by the monster? I think I, I don't know. I didn't even get to a monster. He's in it a lot the first, like, 15, 20 minutes. Yeah. But then I think you get to watch him die, which cathartic. Yeah. Once the monster starts <laughs> going up, people start dropping like flies. So maybe try it again. Yeah. No, watching him die would be good. It's the only reason Troy got me to watch that one Tom Cruise movie. Because he died a bunch. Oh. Wait, which one? Oh, is <laughs> it the one where they keep coming back? Yes, it's got him and it's got um. I'm Loop, the Groundhog Day one. Yeah, yeah, he just it's Day Edge of Tomorrow, I think it's called. And he just dies uh, over and over again. It's great because I hate Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like the reason why I, if I'm flipping through channels and I see that we're in the last half hour of Titanic, I stop and watch it. <laughs> oh, I've never it's seen Titanic. Enough room on that door. <laughs> right. Black Canary. So I know Black Canary from two things. One is the CW Arrow show. Sarah ends up being White Canary. Laurel ends up being Black Canary, but she's horrible. Not a great Black Canary. The other one that I know her from is Injustice, and Injustice is amazing. As I've said several times on the show, it is how I know most of my DC because it pulled me in and it got me to actually understand the world and the characters because I don't have to deal with Superman showing up and saving the day because Superman's the problem. Black Canary, what are people's responses to her and what is their understanding of her outside of, was this like me, your first real incontinuity experience with her? Absolutely. This is the first time I've ever seen anything with her and I never bothered to waste my time with Arrow on the CW, so this was totally new to me. My only other exposure was Arrow on the CW, and that was super lame. And especially, Bear, you'll appreciate this, because isn't her power like a weirding module in the Arrow? (laughs) Isn't it like some kind of mechanical device? Isaiah Lynch's weirding module, yes. Yeah. Yeah, she doesn't make her a metahuman, and I, uh, I could go... Deep on how much I hate what they did to Black Canary in Arrow. Well, all of Arrow, seriously, Kat. I mean, it's just... Even the bits that I thought they'd do good, they teased me and then did badly. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's just, it was entertaining for what it was for a while, and then I just couldn't. And I'm not even a huge fan of that comic run. So I can't imagine people who have any even passing interest in the comic how they feel about it. The centerpiece of one of our many comic book statue cases is Ollie showing Black Canary how to shoot a bow. And she's got her hand up in his hair and stuff. It's it's a beautiful statue. But, like, Troy, my husband, loves Green Arrow. He likes Oliver Queen a lot. He mostly really loves Connor Hawk, which is a deep-cut, nerdy Green Arrow reference. But it means that 
we just really like we have a lot of black canary tangentially because we read a lot of green arrow i love this black canary it is not your standard but again i can see where this one could go and become the black canary i'm used to i can see how she would end up getting trained by shiva i can see how she would end up going and meeting oliver queen this is a great origin story because in comic continuity black canary's mom is the black canary she's also a superhero so the reason that Dinah can fight so well is because she got raised at the Justice Society with Wildcat and OG Flash and stuff. I like that they kind of left it vague, just that her mom was helping out the police, which means that theoretically, she was probably also a metahuman. I just loved this Black Canary so much. I thought they nailed it. How about the performance of Journey Small and Bell? The only other thing that was bothering me, I knew I knew her from something, and it turned out to be True Blood. <laughs> I uh, I saw that too, but I, I just didn't want to reference it. So other than True Blood, now I know this character for something I will actually enjoy. How was the portrayal of Black Canary in the film, especially if you want to compare it to, say, Arrow? That's a low bar. Because <laughs> Arrow fucked up Dinah Laurel Lance so badly. They don't even call her Dinah. That's how badly they fucked her up. Well, Dinah isn't a sexy name. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're watching the CW. Oliver Queen never even called her Little Bird. I guess all I needed in my life was to hear Oliver Queen call her Little Bird once. I got denied. I think she was snarky, which you absolutely have to have for Black Canary. And I think that she did a very good job with the physicality of the role. Because she was doing those kicks and heels and tight pants. Well, they even mention that in the movie. Yeah, it's one of the jokes at the end. You know a movie was written and directed by women, by the way. When the fight scene has a pause for a hair tie. Yes, I loved that. Oh my god. I loved that. I almost, there are times where we're watching something and I have to pause. It doesn't happen that often, but there are times where Jen is laughing so hard that I know I have to pause to give her just a couple of minutes. That was almost to that level of her losing it. The whole booby trap fight scene is yes. some of the best fights that I've seen in movies in a long time. Very much so if you go with women in that fight. Like, we don't get a lot of good female action scenes. I know, like, Atomic Blonde had some pretty good ones, but that was a lot more visceral and, like, yeah. real and lots of yeah. elbows and hard points. But for just kind of, like, a good time fight scene, that whole big fight at the booby trap was fabulous. And it was amazing because it kind of bordered on that like 60s Batman TV show kind of comic crazy. I was absolutely going to go yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it was so good. I loved it. I loved that it. That was my question later. That I'm going to bring up now. This movie gets so close to being Batman and Robin territory without somehow going over that imaginary barrier. And I think that's why some people didn't like it. I think some people just saw it as pure camp, which it definitely gets into those levels, but I'm going to assume that all four of us enjoyed it. And if you didn't, by all, by all means, this is the time to say, you know, it went over that line for me. But how did this movie save itself from going over that camp line? Harley Quinn. Amen. Yeah. You can get away with a lot of things when you've got Harley Quinn there to stand there after the bad guy gets blown up from a grenade in his pocket and go, tacos? Or to mourn the loss of an egg sandwich. Yeah. I was with her, though, when that egg sandwich died. I think I was drinking when we were watching that movie, and I was just like, ooh, egg sandwich. Sounds amazing. 
fair, I made egg sandwiches the next day <laughs> for her <laughs> breakfast. Yeah. Exactly. The cheese, the yep. little bit of hot sauce, the whole thing. Yep. But taste the cheese. It was not six months old. It didn't I have any Latvian hair? That's true. Or Latvian hair? I've actually shaved my chest, so there is, and I'm not of dis, of that descent anyway, so, you know. Latvian hair is much different. you got to go through a mask to get yeah. Latvian hair. Doom demands egg sandwiches! A well-handled Harley is what keeps it from going campy. Because Harley is what brings the camp to. I really loved the film version of Black Canary. I thought it was great. I agree with Kat on a lot of levels. I like that her origin is a little cloudy, but we can those of us who know a little bit more about the character can guess where that came from. This totally felt like an origin story movie and that we're going to see more of these characters. So as a half Hispanic growing up, there are a lot of actors that I have followed their career, whether I wanted to or not, from the very beginning, due to my mother. And Rosie Perez is absolutely one of those actors. And she Uh, should be. Absolutely should be. Well, and in this, as Renee Montoya, who is a pretty well-known character now, but the first of two characters that we'll talk about this episode that were created in the Batman the Animated Series... Showed up in the comic a little bit before, but only as a lead-in. She's nowhere in this Birds of Prey comic. Her addition to the movie, I felt, is what made me enjoy the movie more than the comic. I did enjoy the comic, but in a very comic book way. And as far as I know, this is the first yep. time Montoya has shown up cinematically. Animated DC movies, because there are a crap ton of those. Yeah. Wasn't she the cop that was blackmailed in Dark Knight? I don't think so. If so, they did her a disservice. Yeah, absolutely. Let's ask the D. (laughs) (laughs) Renee Montoya, great character. And actually, if you enjoy her, this is going to be my graphic novel plug for reading Gotham Central, which is a comic entirely about the GCPD. It is definitely an interesting look at the superhero side of things. Yeah, and I actually have a pretty couple of notes about this movie and the fact that they decided to set it in Gotham. It allows them to get away with certain things. There are parts of it that they really nailed about Gotham, and I think there are parts that they didn't. Like, that whole opening chase scene with the sandwich is cinematic masterpiece, but in no parts of it do I think, oh, they're in Gotham City. I actively thought, are they in Metropolis during this? It is too bright and clean. (laughs) Well, but they were in Chinatown. Metropolis probably has a Chinatown. (laughs) Yeah. It's probably nicer than Gotham. (laughs) If Superman allows immigrants. We're not in this fight today. Can, can we... <laughs> okay, okay. Time out. Can we circle back to Rosie Perez, please? She's in a movie with women who are in their 20s and 30s. That woman is well into her 50s and does not look it at all. The actor is freaking amazing. And I just want people to realize that she is... Keeping up with all the youngins. And she does it fabulously, too. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. The reason I mentioned Gotham in connection with her is because she's part of Gotham PD, and that makes it... The fact that there are times it really feels like Gotham, the whole booby trap setting felt really like Gotham, but the biggest thing is her experience within the police department and her experience with the kind of bureaucracy is so Gotham, because anytime you're like, that's not how police departments work, you can go, oh, but it's Gotham. As you said, she's a much older Renee Montoya than we usually get. 
Usually Renee Montoya is the young, enthusiastic cop who thinks that she can do everything the right way. It's one of the reasons she works so well most of the time under James Gordon, because she's one of those young cops who's buying what he's selling versus the multitude of dirty cops who aren't. Or on the other side with Bullock. And in fact, um, in this and in looking at it and looking at her character and how she normally is, I didn't realize this, but Gotham is not the story of Jim Gordon. Gotham could easily be the story of Renee Montoya stuck with Harvey Bullock. Oh, is he in it? No. Uh, well, oh. Harvey Bullock is Jim Gordon's original partner in Gotham. Okay, cool. So he's the one that, like, knows how Gotham works and, like, takes the bribes he needs to in order to do his job and, like, is the good Gotham cop that's still on the take but at least knows how the system works. And yeah. Jim brings him around to it, which is great. I easily could replace Jim Gordon with Renee Montoya in the early parts of Gotham. We watched the movie right before we recorded this, and we talked about this Renee and how it's almost like it's Renee Montoya if she only had Bullock and didn't have Gordon. Because Bullock was always the, he wasn't a dirty cop per se, but he was never quite enthusiastic enough to be the good cop that she and Gordon want to be, but also never quite the guy that's always on the take. And so it felt like that kind of, like, she must have come in as her normal, like, Renee Montoyaness when she was young and only ever got Bullock and never got James Gordon to be there and have her back and just got beat down by the system. And when she was talking about her partner that took credit, I was like, here we go. It's going to be Bullock. It's going to be Bullock. Like, I, I was so <laughs> prepared for that. And I actually like Bullock as a character, both in the animated series and in Gotham. I feel he's one of the stronger characters to watch. Because he is that, I'm not corrupt, but I also am so burned out as to how this city works that I know I could fight my way uphill and then just get killed by one of these madmen. So I'm just going to toe the line enough that I put enough people away that I feel that I've done my job and I can call it a day. And I'm still doing 500% more than any of these other corrupt cops. Yeah, but I love that they didn't shy away from her sexuality. This wasn't the perfect Birds of Prey comic to select, but I did like that it, it does have that kind of essential Gail Simone where she's all about inclusivity. And so there is a gay couple in this comic. And same thing by having, if you oh, by the way, the DA is her ex-girlfriend. Because in continuity, Renee Montoya is gay. She almost gets married to Batwoman because they're both superheroes. Renee ends up taking on the mantle of the question. She's so good at the question. And so this is the only one where... I two characters in this that I'm like, I can't see where this becomes the comic one, but at least for this one, I can see where it diverged and never got the chance to become the comic version. She's still great, and I love Renee Montoya, and I love the idea of her being kind of like the grizzled, sort of having to take the place because they don't have an oracle of the kind of team lead. I felt like not knowing the backstory of Renee Montoya, there was a nod to kind of the Me Too, where it was like her partner was a dude took all of her the glory from her and got elevated despite her and then ended up ultimately being the reason that she left the force that was an interesting angle Kat you had mentioned Batwoman and I do need to mention real quick this episode was going to be the CW Batwoman series and the subsequent comic by Greg Rucka for better or for worse I believe you would say for better we ended up on this instead because of the COVID-19 pandemic and that season 
of the first season of the show was not finished. Just wanted to throw that out in case anybody was like, hey, where's the Batwoman episode? It might come. We have to find a season three substitute or a season four to get it in there. We, we have to find the stomach to watch the rest of the series. Great Thanks, comic. Bear. Okay, show. Thanks, Just Bear. read the comic. You got it's... me, Bear. <laughs> <laughs> I got you, girl. I know, I know what, you, what you don't okay. like. <laughs> okay. Apparently, at max, we can only give Jen two things per season that, that she abhors. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Come on. The next two, one is not is mentioned in the comic, but is not in the comic. The other is in the comic and not in the movie. And the thing that they have in common is I am not familiar with either of them at all. The first one in the movie was Cassandra Kane. Who is she? Okay, so this is not Cassandra Kane. I love this movie. I love everything about it. I love everything they did, except that this should have been Stephanie Brown. If you make this spoiler, character... right? Yes, spoiler. Boom. Good job, proud of you. Bat family stuff. <laughs> if you make this character Stephanie Brown, I have zero complaints about this film, top bottom. But this isn't Cassandra Kane. Cassandra Kane was adopted by a crazy, murderous assassin, raised with no language. Literally, she was locked in a cell from basically birth on, and no one was allowed to speak around her, so that she never developed language skills, and so that she only ever developed the ability to tell what people were doing and anticipate language through their physical body language, so that she'd be a better fighter. It was, she was an ex- he was basically running an experiment on a baby. Cassandra Kane couldn't talk for... Like the first two years of comics, her her bat woman, her Batgirl costume is badass because it literally has no mouth. It's just a solid black cowl, and that's why when they said what no witty comeback, and then she kind of clears her throat and talks, was absolutely an inside nod joke to oh this Cassandra Kane talks. I liked what they did with this character. I thought it was a really cool character. I just can't call her Cassandra Kane because she's she is not Cassandra Kane at all. Cause partly because Cassandra Kane is a badass. A, like, murderous badass. If, if we're going DC fighters, one thing I like about DC is that most of the martial artists that are kind of ranked are almost all women. Lady Shiva is universally the most terrifying martial artist in the DC universe. She will usually send someone to go test other martial artists and see if they're worthy of her bothering to fight. Dinah Lance has always been on her list of, you are worthy of me to bother fighting. Cassandra Kane is also on that list. Because she was raised without language, this is comic logic here. Because she was raised that language, it allowed her to better read physical language, thus made her a better fighter. That kind of brings me to a question that I had. The idea of honor was being tossed around a lot in the comic run. And it seemed lots of characters were talking about honor and that they were doing things out of honor in ways that were not honorable or that just didn't really make any real sense. And in fact, Shiva's honor got called out as being WTF, mate. <laughs> well, Shiva's a villain. That's the thing. It's honor through the haze of neutral evil. These are none of these are good people. So they're what their idea of honor is very specific to them. Okay. So WTF, mate, is absolutely appropriate. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, when you're as badass and scary as Shiva, you're allowed to make honor be whatever you want it to be because no one's going to stop you. <laughs> Honestly, in everything that I've seen of anytime anybody starts talking about honor in movies, comic books, TV series, honestly, even some of the bits and pieces that I've studied about in real life in Asian cultures, honor is, if you can logically find a way to work around honor, that's honorable. It's really just kind of a messed up thing. It's Honor is kind of just what another... What you can get away with? It's another yeah, rule we, you can work as around. As we've uh, established... 
on this show, the three of us are, are gamer nerds. Cat very much is a gamer nerd. There's an entire game called Legend of the Five Rings Eesh. that this entire concept of honor and how you can get away with honor and things like that, that's the entire conceit of the game. You can destroy another character by starting rumors about them in court. I've never played that one. That's a fun one for people that play too much vampire. If you take Cassandra Kane and instead make her Stephanie Brown, who was one of the Batgirls, she was Batgirl after Cassandra Kane. She was also a spoiler, as you said. She was not quite homeless. She had a mom, I think. She had a single mom. Kind of raised on the bad side of Gotham. I don't know if she was specifically a pickpocket or a thief, but she never was on entirely on the right side of the law. Like, everything they do there, including the snark and the talkback, is like quintessential Stephanie Brown. If my brother was here, he would be telling you all to read Stephanie Brown Batgirl Run because it is the best Batgirl. We will fight about that at a later date. Other character that I had never, ever heard of, and it's rare. I had at least heard the name Cassandra Kane. I had never heard of this person before I read End Run. Lady Blackhawk. Oh, I love Lady Blackhawk. But never showed up in, in Justice, never showed up in any of the stuff that I've seen. As far as I know, wasn't in any of the animated series that I've watched. Like, nothing. Is Lady Blackhawk the female Captain America? Yep, basically, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because okay. without the, like, I... superhuman, like, badassedness, she's, like, baseline standard human. Right, but her patter, like, her conversational patter amused me to no end. I loved it. <laughs> highly recommend giving her a quick Google and seeing what else she's in, because, God, I love Lady Blackhawks. She is, yeah, she's lost in time. She was a fighter pilot in World War II, along with the rest of the Blackhawks. Right. And she gets lost in time, and I don't specifically remember Wait, how. the hockey players? No. No. Keep up, Josh. <laughs> no, because these Blackhawks are cool. Oh! Ooh, shots fired! Shots fired! <laughs> Air horn! <laughs> I'm a St. Louis Blues fan. By law, I'm required to dunk on the Chicago Blackhawks, particularly when they miss the Stanley Cup playoffs two years in a row. I have, I'm a, I have hockey friends somewhere that are very right. upset right now. I'm a Cedar Rapids Rough Riders fan. No one cares. I was amused by the introduction of Lady Blackhawk. She is singular in her need for when she's feeling rough, she needs a beer. I did enjoy that. I enjoyed the hell out of that. She was like, I just, like, they're sitting down and they're like, have you seen this spread? Why aren't you guys digging in? Or like, I could really go for eight beers. Or when she's in a hospital bed. Yeah. And she's like, nothing that six beers couldn't fix. Yeah. So in that way, she's the bear of the DC universe. (laughs) No, I was totally down with Lady Blackhawk. Like, again, I had no frame of reference. Let's be honest. I have no frame of reference for most of the characters in this whole run. I don't know who you are, but I really enjoy that you keep popping out and saying shit that would come out of my mouth. Yeah. Now, there's one other character that's in the comic, but not in the movie, but Josh. Oh, yeah. I, there's actually three. Yep. All right. There is, there's only one I care about. There's Hawk and Dove, <laughs> who are a team, and like I said, are in Titans, and we will get into them in the eventual Titans episode. And, and I have to say... That I record in the corner of a Starbucks without anybody else around me. Again, and I have to you. say, yawn, eye roll. The yep. thing that I did like, especially about Hawk's inclusion, is he's the only guy on the team. 
he acts like the macho everything because he's the like avatar of war and they do nothing but talk about how much they freaking hate him I, I was gonna bring that up myself i was i was actually really tickled by the fact that you have this beautiful i don't know what to call him cretin that's part of the team <laughs> <laughs> and that everybody just makes fun of and it's just like oh it's kind of like pat 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 isn't he cute yeah. Get rid of him now. My favorite line of uh, about him was they say, oh, well, what about Hawk? And they're like, you mean the guy who punched a tank because it dared to <laughs> aim at him? That fits. And actually kind of similar to how he is in Titans. You don't watch the team of Hawk and Dove for Hawk. No. This, this is the stereotypical like D&D barbarian is what I got out of this. Getting to the last person that was in the comic and that I believe should have been in the movie. Oracle, the former oh. back Barbara Gordon. Thanks away, Kat. My favorite character in all of, well, second favorite character in all of comics, because I still have a soft spot for Power Girl. Barbara Gordon was Batgirl for years. No one knew what to do with her. Alan Moore was like, I need a character to mess with, but I need to fridge a girl to motivate Batman for this one shot I'm doing. And they went, well, no one cares about Barbara Gordon here. And he paralyzed her. And that was, like, the last we heard from her for a solid most of a decade. And then they, there was a uh, a guy called Calculator, who was a villain in the DC Universe, who realized he was bad at being a villain because he was Calculator Man, and there's just not a lot to do there. And started kind of doing what Oracle does, being the guy in the chair for all these villains. And you could hire him, and he would help you out with your heist and whatever. Babs kind of found out about him and was like, oh, I could do that. And so she became the person with the computer who had the, the network and everything else to basically help other heroes need to know, oh, I need to get into this building. Here's the schematics. I can walk you through it. All that kind of stuff. And it allowed her to still be active in the community while also being paralyzed, especially the way that Gail Simone uses her throughout the entirety of the Birds of Prey run, constantly looked at by the disabled community as a great representation for them in comics because you don't get a lot of it. Oracle being the probably most famous person in the chair, it's done in Arrow by Felicity Smoke, which is, at that point, even in later seasons of Arrow, she's in a wheelchair, and she's she is indistinguishable from the Oracle part of Barbara Gordon. I was about to be like, no, Barbara Gordon has a personality. Yeah. Uh, out of the comic run of reading that, Barbara was the only one I liked. I love that. That scene with Savant and uh, that scene where she realizes her own failings and how she handled something was amazing. Just everything about her is that six book run is like watching her realize her own foibles and how she needs to correct them. I am not going to spoil anything about either of those two characters that you just mentioned but one of them has one of the most interesting, it's not superpower, I would just call it like a, a drawback, I guess. A flaw. Like as, yeah, as somebody that's played in role-playing games and really gets into, you know, how would you play X or Y. Barbara Gordon's always been just top of my favorite comic characters like in that, that mix because... Unlike everyone else in the Bat family, she doesn't have to be here. Mm. Not this version, like, right, she got shot by the Joker and stuff. But when she became Batgirl, she did it because it was the right thing to do, and she wanted to do the right thing. Everyone else has tragedy. Tim's mom 
got killed, or Jason Todd on Andrea. Dick, <laughs> <laughs> Dick Grayson's parents got killed. Like, everyone has that reason that they come and do this, except for Babs. Babs wanted to become a cop. Her dad was in charge of the police force and made the minimum height you had to be one inch taller than her height. Yeah. Very Babs, specifically. <laughs> Babs, like, uh, I recently started playing, obviously in quarantine, I've got some time on my hands. I recently started replaying all of the Batman Arkham games. And the big one that's always forgotten that's on PS now is Origins, which is kind of like the Batman Year One of the Arkham games. And the best part of that game is Batman has to go and put something on the GCPD computers to, like, be able to... It's the first time that he's ever going to be able to, to get the information out of it. And Babs catches him. She nails him to the wall and is like, what are you doing? You're the Batman. What's going on? And they have a conversation, and at the end of it, she's like, okay, and covers for him, diverts the cops to basically say, oh, no, I'm just here to visit my dad, and, like, I was checking out your servers because, you know, I'm tech girl. So I had totally forgotten about that part, but it is quintessential Barbara. If you can give her a really good reason for what's going on and why it is the right thing, you have an ally 1,000%. That scene that Jen talked about where she realizes how she screwed up and immediately is like, I've got to fix it. That's why she's not Batman. Yep. Because Bruce is not capable of self-reflection. Bruce Wayne's a dickhead. Always has been. Always will be. Batman's an asshole. Barbara isn't. And Dick isn't. Dick Grayson, when he becomes Batman, everyone who ever spends any time around him is like, that's not the same dude. Well, but... but There is also mention, Barbara makes mention of how there's like this really small part in the comic where she's like, it may have been Alfred, but only Bruce would think to put ramps in the Batcave. She does reference that he does have, thinks about other people sometimes, but this comic arc was really... Uh, an insight into Barbara's mind. We were outside of that and we were the whole Black Canary thing and whatever. Everything here was how to this point Barbara has influenced the quote-unquote heroes and how she's managed Gotham and how she realizes she's wrong and how she's going to move forward from that point. I feel like she's kind of the pivotal character in the run of six that we read. And she's kind of the pivotal character for Birds of Prey. That's why I said that Renee Montoya in the movie feels like their oracle, because there's that person who's kind mm-hmm. of just have to have their head in the game and be mm-hmm. like, we got to direct. You guys are chaos. I'm hurting cats here. I'm going to manage things while you run and do that thing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and that's yeah. what Babs does, and that's absolutely what Renee does at the end when she's like, we could clean this city out, we could do this. Like, that was all Renee, and it's because yeah. they don't have an oracle. Right. So, speaking of chaos, let's get to why a lot of people are listening to this show. Let's talk about us some Harley Quinn. Also, a creation of the Batman animated series. We love oh, yeah. oh, that yeah. series. Absolutely. Yes. It had some issues with the... And I'm going to try not to rip off We Hate Movies, but the way that they pronounce it is Waka Waka Suicide Squad. Do we have to? Well, it's the first movie that had her. This one leaps and bounds better. Can we just forget about the first one? 
technically, it, it doesn't, aside from Harley Quinn being in, it doesn't really have any relation to the rest of the Birds of Prey stuff. So I don't right. think we need to. Well, also, she does the I break with the, I break with the, I break with the in the beginning of the movie. So I think we're good there, right? I mean, she does reference it later. She references Suicide Squad as when she's going through how you become what, what I am to the past. <laughs> right. You get you go to prison, you get a bomb put in your so, head. <laughs> the note that I have here is the only difference, or the big difference, because people always talk about Deadpool and Harley Quinn and how they are similar-ish. The only difference is if this had been Deadpool, he would have taken the original Masters of Suicide Squad and put it in the truck as he drove it into Ace Chemicals to destroy it to therefore retroactively destroy Suicide Squad. I figured he would have taken the Masters and stuffed them up Juggernaut's ass. (laughs) (laughs) To talk about Harley Quinn, we don't shy away from the problematic on this show. So there are a large amount of people that hold Harley Quinn and Joker up as the goal of a relationship. People I know, I put them into the same category as people that talk about how Romeo and Juliet is a romance. A love story. Yeah, Yeah, no. How is this film, and in some cases a little bit of Suicide Squad, but mostly this film. You keep bringing up that movie. (laughs) Well, I have to. You don't have to. Ask your question. How did this movie improve the vision of that relationship? Using only animation to intro the film so that we never see Joker besides a cartoon idealized Joker is wonderful because we mean we don't have to see that Joker. Right. Because that Joker was garbage. Plus, it leaves it ambiguous for when they absolutely recast Joker because they're gonna. (laughs) Yeah. I know that they added the colon rest of the title of the film so people would understand that Harley Quinn was in this movie that they knew what this movie was about, but that also is exactly how or what. The answer to your question, the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn, that's what Birds of Prey is to Suicide Squad. Absolutely. Harley Quinn is not in the Birds of Prey comic that we're talking about, but there is a, I would call it similar in style and in tone, and that is Gotham City Sirens. I did not have Jen or Bear read Gotham City Sirens for this, but I know, Kat, that you were at least passively familiar with it. It is a comic in which Harley Quinn, after her breakup with the Joker, teams up with Poison Ivy and Catwoman, and they form their own sort of super team villain hero thing. They're very uh, great. I'm yes. here for it. I am here for it. I own the omnibus. It is fabulous. I'm here for it. Totally. So, would this have been better as Gotham City Sirens? Would this movie have been better? I am torn on that, because on the one hand, probably it would make more sense. But on the other hand, as a massive Barbara Gordon fan and Birds of Prey fan, I'm getting to see versions of characters that I normally don't, right? We've seen Poison Ivy in movies, and we've seen Catwoman in movies, and this is allowing me to see characters. I don't, they don't get visibility. So from like a totally selfish standpoint, no. But from a logical standpoint, yeah, probably. But 
cat, let me pose this to you. So at the end of the movie, the quote-unquote good guys form their own kind of band, and Harley goes off on her own. So there is the possibility of the Gotham City Sirens forming in addition to... Yeah, in a world where this had made money. (laughs) Bear, what do you think about Gotham City Sirens? Uh, I agree with the sentiment that it probably would have done better in the box office, too, as Gotham City Sirens, as opposed to Birds of Prey and introducing a bunch of characters that, I mean, I, for one, had no clue on most of these characters. I knew Barbara Gordon only because I hang around Cat. <laughs> Other than that, uh, like... Did you ever rest- watch the 66 Batman? Well, yeah. Three seasons, I think, on Voodoo. I've still nice. got and watched most of them. Yeah, there you go. See, she's in that. But that well, I'm just that. talking about like as far as the comic goes. Like I haven't, you know, I haven't seen, you know, had never really dealt with Huntress or Black Canary or any of the rest of these characters. Like I got Barbara Gordon, I got Harley Quinn. That's all I've got. So like even from my perspective, like this would have probably done better in the box office if it had been Gotham City Sirens. Black Mask is a villain. First of all, James McAvoy who we have talked about <laughs> during Atomic Blonde. Love and I, James McAvoy. And I found so much of him in Atomic Blonde in this movie, like that energy from him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. James McAvoy's not in this movie. That wasn't James McAvoy? That's no. Ewan McGregor. <laughs> yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. That... My fault. You've completely go, go, mixed up your Scottish actors. <laughs> That being said, Still love James McAvoy. Shit, did Ewan McGregor kick the crap out of Black Mask? Yes. Right? So good. Ewan McGregor never phones it in, to be fair. I love their pick of villains for this movie because Victor Zaz, he gets done occasionally. There's not a lot of depth to him. This guy did fine. There's one, of not... the, one of the better parts of Gotham, I'll say, is the Victor Zaz that they have in that. Yeah, but Zaz is not a deep character in the comics or in any, like, there's not a lot to him. Right. He's got right. a very good job with him. Yeah, but. I agree. And I was actually going to make that point, Kat, is it feels like the villains in the comic, while they have a lot going on there, they're not as interesting. The villains in the movie were actually kind of interesting. And all right, I'll just say this. They fit the feel of the movie better than I felt like the villains in the comic fit what I felt like the heroes were going for there. I don't know. It just fit better, I felt. It's very good penguin in the comic, but otherwise I'll, I'll totally agree with you. No, I agree with that one. The penguin was very, very well done. Absolutely. Black Mask was a really bold choice. Let me find my notes on that. All I wrote for... <laughs> I just looked at my notes. I had Harley Quinn. All I put for Harley Quinn was Robbie's Harley remains sublime. Like, nothing else needs to be said. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> She's still just great. Yeah, Black Mask as a choice here is wonderful because he's not very utilized. We don't really get to see very much of him, and they really got to play with that. McGregor really nailed that kind of psychosis of him. It was just so good. It just, like, you could watch his face when it would, like, turn. But Zaz played a major role into that because you could watch him be defeated. You could see where Sionis was kind of on that brink. He could go either way. And then Zaz would push it to the extent every time. Right. Because he wanted that release. 
Zaz wanted the boss to say, yes, do that thing that you actually want to do, but you need my permission to do. It was a very, there was a relationship there that was not necessarily the best. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, it was totally manipulative. And another thing that Black Mask kind of emphasizes, but it goes back to, to Harley Quinn, is a lot of time Harley Quinn's just a yuckster. She's just there for the jokes or the breaking of that kind of, like, tension. This movie did not shy away from the fact that she's got a PhD and she's a psychologist and she's smart as hell. And that is best utilized when she is psychoanalyzing him all the time. Like, when she's constantly like, well, what this is actually doing to him is this and this and this. That is so good because you never get to see them portray Harley as smart. Right. And she is the best when she is planning battle plan. When she is taking into account the psychology of those involved. She knows how to manage that, and I think that that's played out really well, especially at the at the booby trap. Yeah, and just her interactions with Black Mask, I think, really show how well she can quickly, like, on the fly, adjust to that person's psychosis. We've been through Birds of Prey. We talked a little bit about Gotham City Sirens. We've gotten into Carly Quinn. Jen, would you continue to read this comic, or are you jumping over to Gotham City Sirens, which I have I will probably be jumping over to Gotham City Sirens. I didn't care for the melodrama back and forth of what we read, but I am excited to see what else is out there for the characters that I did enjoy. If the character you cared most about in this run was Barbara Gordon, you should read Gail Simone's New 52 Batgirl run. Cool. I will absolutely check it out. Will you continue to read this comic? I actually kind of enjoyed the comic. There was a lot of stuff that I liked about it. It's just one that it was good, but it really wasn't enough to grab me. I might read a couple more issues just because I think you sent me the first 12 or or something like that. So I might read the rest of those just to kind of see where it goes. It was good, but it's not really up there on my list of things that I really want to go do. I am probably in the same boat. I like the matchup. I really like Oracle. I like Huntress and Black Canary. I like... I like the way they interact, but I can also get that in different ways with other characters that I'm more familiar with. And none of these characters, like, there are areas that I can grab them. Like Kat said, I can go and read a Batgirl run just on her own, and I have, and I really enjoy it. That was the character that was bringing me to the dance. There are other versions of these characters. I really like Black Canary in Injustice but I get a lot of that stuff there. The Huntress that I really like is a different kind of Huntress, but Gotham City Sirens is where I'm going to get a lot of this camaraderie and more to what I feel the movie kind of exemplified. Kat, thank you so much for joining us. This has been awesome. We will definitely have you back for other things DC. It might be just you and your husband talking to me about Titans apparently. Unless yeah, I get these Troy two. can hate watch Titans, but I will not hate watch Titans <laughs> for you. I'm sorry. I have I'm some taste. You, it was good. I don't care. I, you know, I think there needs to be a hill that you die on, and there needs to be things that perhaps need to just be let go. Anyway, Kat, what else do you have going on? Plug, plug, plug. I'm pretty boring. I don't have a lot going on. I did just guest on another podcast yesterday. I was on a podcast called School of Movies, which is great. I've been listening to them for years. We did an episode about season five of Red Dwarf, 
which is a great kicking off season for that show. I highly recommend it. And also contains probably the best episode of Red Dwarf ever, Quarantine. (laughs) If you've ever been curious about Red Dwarf, it's an old, like, late 80s, early 90s British sci-fi, a little more dark, grungy sci-fi a la Aliens versus shiny future sci-fi like Star Trek, but it's a comedy. I can't even tell you what seasons of Red Dwarf I've watched because I watched it on PBS back in the day, like when I was young. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing because it it would always used to come on on PBS when I was still living at home in South Dakota. It would be on right after Red Red Green. Green. And I loved watching Red Green, and I was a big fan of, like, British humor, but Red Dwarf would come on, and I just, I don't know, it seemed like I was constantly lost, and, like, it just never, it was never one of those shows that clicked with me, but, I mean... Yeah. I would watch Red Dwarf, it was classic Who came on after that that I, I pieced out. The same thing, and they actually asked how we, because they were, it's a British podcast, they were so amused, they had two women from America on to talk about this kind of British boys show, and I was like... Well, it was on after Red Green and before Doctor Who, actually technically before Jack Horkheimer Stargazer, unless you're old like my husband, in which it was Jack Horkheimer Stargazer. Hey, hey, watch it. (laughs) Some of us on here that are old. (laughs) And then it was Classic Who, and we'd always go to bed after Stargazer, but before Who, because Who was weird. But if you've ever thought about it, or if Red Dwarf seems kind of like it might be a thing, it is a great tension breaker in this time of chaos. Start with the episode Quarantine from Season 5. If you don't like that, you're not going to like Red Dwarf. But that's the one with the holovirus and Mr. Flibbles, and it's hysterical. So this has been Graphically Novel. Thank you for coming. I'm not sure what our next episode is. It might be TMNT. Yay! Running up onto Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles next. Have fun with that one. As always, take it away, Vandello. Ever as it seems. Do, 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 do.